0: welcome to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly well we get into copyright law why some much needed copyright reform is long overdue some discussion also about the future of the rcmp going in ottawa these days given the scrutiny that they've been under and we'll shed some light on mpp sarah Jamma's appearance at an anti-police anti-israeli rally and minimum wage workers across canada can't even keep up with the price of the rent it's all coming up with the bill kelly podcast and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml copyright laws now we've got all sorts of controversy that's been going on uh with federal legislation uh, to do with uh online streaming and things of this nature and the people that are creating content in other words product uh need to be properly compensated for it and there are a couple of uh of laws that were passed bills that were passed uh that address that but another part of that of course was uh, supposed to be copyright uh legislation and that's not forthcoming. And uh, well, a lot of people are wondering why. And it's simply a matter that uh, a lot of people that uh, are deserving of, of of money and revenue here are simply not getting it. We'll explain this in a couple of seconds with our, our guest. Uh, he is, of course, Hugh Stevens. He was the author of a forthcoming book entitled In Defense of Copyright and Executive Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, Hugh, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Bill. Glad to be here. I read the op-ed piece that was in the Toronto or the Globe and Mail rather about this the other day, and it got me to thinking, as I do from time to time. And I started to Google this and read some contrary points of view from people in academia. Uh, and the, the, the thrust of what they seem to be saying is everything's fine, just the way it is. You know, don't go for the stuff that you know there's an imbalance here and people are not being compensated properly. Uh, now that story was about a year old, but I think it was probably one of the things that that motivated uh, the government to start moving forward on this, which they haven't done yet. What, what's the status and why is this so important?
1: Well, you've put your finger on one of the issues, Bill, which is the issue of uh, educational copying. Back in uh, 2012, the last time the Act was updated, uh, an additional exemption, if you like, was added uh, for education, along with other exemptions like uh, uh, research and, and quotation and, 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 and so on. And the end result of this has been widespread copying by both uh, secondary ministries of education and post-secondary education. Uh, They used to get a uh, a kind of a copying license, a reproduction license from the copyright collective. They've decided that... uh, this uh, new exemption means they don't need to do that. The result has been a significant loss of revenues for Canadian publishers and authors, with with some other knock on effects too. So, as you say, it's it's not without controversy. People in the educational sector say, well, there's no no problem here, uh, but certainly authors and the copyright collective and publishers have uh, are, are very concerned. And a, a couple of parliamentary committees have looked at this, but to date, nothing has been done to rebalance uh, the uh, the
0: rights of users and the rights of creators. So this is not unlike uh, it's it's a cousin I guess to the to the legislation that they did pass that had to do with uh, with uh, internet content etc. In other words people that are creating product here are not getting compensated for it
1: that That's correct, yeah, there are other issues to do with taking sure. content off the internet and who's responsible and how you stop it and so forth. I mean what's sometimes referred to as piracy um but this is not piracy per se I mean this is sort of unauthorized access, if you like uh well it's not authorized by the by the creator, but to date it has uh, it, it, it's, it's legal under the terms of the new act and it's causing problems for our creative sector
0: so somebody could. You know, create something, write something, write an essay, whatever the case might be, uh, and six months later, go and see it in some publication or see it as a, as part of a a criterion at a university, and say, "Hey, that's my work," and they'd say, "Yeah, thanks a lot. We don't have to compensate you for it." That's that's kind of what's happening now, isn't it?
1: Well, there are limitations. you just can't take anything you want and use it as much as you want. but the guidelines that uh, used to used to be used to prevail under licensing gave a certain amount of access, you know like one chapter in a book uh, one article in a magazine uh you know, a, f- a full newspaper uh, clipping and so forth. And then if you went beyond that, then there had to be uh, further discussions. But this, this sort of broad license allowed you to take a reasonable amount to use for educational purposes. And now with the new exemption, the uh, basically the, the, uh, the institutions themselves have declared, well, we think that what we were paying for before is now fair dealing, as it's called in Canada. People are are quite often familiar with the term fair use, which is a U.S. concept. It's fair dealing, so uh, we're just going to do what we used to do, but we are not going to acquire reproduction licenses anymore. And that's been the case now for about the last decade.
0: You suggested in the in the piece that I read that uh, that uh, this might have just been happenstance that they use that word uh, that that kind of opened the door for them. Uh, did anybody bring it to their attention, or is this just something that's uh, in a cumulative aspect? People are saying, "Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. this has become a, a little problem is now a big problem."
1: Well, there've been a series of court cases. It all has to do with the balance between the rights of users and the rights of creators. And users had a number of rights. There was always the right of private study. And then through various court cases, this became kind of uh, broadened. So it used to be that a student had the right to access a certain amount of material for private study. Then it was a question: Well, could the teacher access it on behalf of the student? That seemed to make sense in a classroom setting. And then it became: Could the uh, institution access it on behalf of the students? In fact, could the institution take this material bind it into a course pack sell it to the students and not compensate the author so it has been a sort of a series of 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 creeping uh um developments then encapsulated if you like by the addition of the word education and then some court cases since you know um which have been uh resolved and partially resolved but not completely completely resolved and so um certainly from the perspective of publishers and the creative community and people that value copyright, and I put myself in that camp, it's time to revisit this and perhaps bring a bit more balance, not to um, eliminate the education exception, but perhaps to narrow it so that the free writing by the uh, post-secondary institutions uh, is ended.
0: And there's going to be some pushback as as I understand it. Well, I told you just at the beginning of our conversation, some of the pieces I read uh, from the other side of this issue right now suggesting everything's just fine. Well, I I can understand why they're stating that because they're getting not a free ride necessarily, uh, but they're getting access that ordinarily they would probably have to compensate for. So, you know, why would they want to change it?
1: Well, that's correct. And the the institutions, uh, you know, the argument is, well, you know, you're making students pay for this. Students are hard up. The cost of tuition has gone up. The student loans, you know, the whole uh, Laurentian University went bankrupt. The whole thing uh, about the education sector being under stress. So, you know, why should we have to pay what what probably would be a couple of dollars per student per year? Uh, That just adds to our costs. Well, I understand that argument. But at the same time, universities, uh, you know, they run parking lots, they run parking lots, run cafeterias. They they run residences. And those are all paid for. So why wouldn't the inputs, one of the primary inputs, i.e. educational materials, be paid for? Uh, Of course, in some cases, they are paid for by other means. But the fact remains that the reproduction licenses that the post-secondary institutions used to pay for uh, have been set aside.
0: This is part of a bigger problem, of course, about funding for universities. If in fact that's what they're using as, as you know, the the foundation for their argument, and I and and they've got a legitimate point. I mean, money is tight these days. I know uh, the universities, Western University for our London listeners, McMaster here, and, and just about every university uh, is financially strapped these days. Uh, but it, it just seems as if. Uh, this is something that, that is falls under the guise of, of fairness and proper compensation, not unlike what the uh, the, the copyright bills did with uh, with internet content and things of this nature. So I, I guess the, you had to expect there was some pushback on this. Uh, one of the I wanted to ask you though, Hugh, you mentioned also that the the, the initial time and the last time that this had this re- legislation was written, uh, it was also at that time understood that there were going to be every five years there was going to be a review of what's going on. That hasn't happened since the bill was passed. What's going
2: on?
1: Well, you know, we've had a series of electoral changes. It took ages to get the uh, the Copyright Modernization Act passed, which was done under the Stephen Harper government, and that was essential. Canada had signed some international treaties that it needed to implement and was not able to do so until this legislation was passed, and that took over a decade. And then, of course... Uh, So five years from uh, 2012 is is we're in the first Trudeau government mandate. Now we're in a minority government. The thing is with copyright reform, it's complicated. Many people's eyes glaze over when they hear the word copyright. A lot of the younger generation... seem to think that copyright equals uh, no trespassing. So it's, it's, it's complex. It's very important to the Canadian uh, cultural community, to publishers, to authors, to filmmakers, to musicians, to, to the whole range. But uh, that's a diffuse group as the cultural sector uh, you know, doesn't necessarily have the ear of government to the extent that some other industries. And so it's easy to kind of kick the can down the road. And unfortunately, it's been kicked down the can now for 11 years. There's a couple of years left in this mandate. I hope that the government will step up and do what it needs to do.
0: But this is not unlike. Well, we don't rent movies anymore; it's everything extreme. But back in the days when you would get a DVD or a cd whatever this, it, uh, it always says at the beginning, you know, if you cop, it, you know, not, and the FBI is going to come and get you. I mean, but that warning, it's on every. <laughs> yeah. And and we also, yeah, 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 sure, whatever that is. Uh, but it, copyright infringement is a big deal. It's 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 basically, as you say, one of the words, the uglier words that are, that you know you could use synonymous with that is is pirating. And and this is not necessarily pirating. Uh, because the legislation, I guess, was was really just too wide-ranging, and so they're zeroing in on this. Uh, It's it's something I would think probably could have been discussed and and maybe addressed during that five-year review, but since you haven't had one, now you've got an uphill battle here.
1: It's very important for a democratic society. I mean, um, a cultural sector, uh, you know, people that, 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 that create, that reflect a society. Uh, and I'm not just talking about novels. I'm talking about general creation. I'm talking about entertainment. I'm talking about musicians. These, they're intangible products, and they're very, very easy to rip off. And if you sort of suck the value out of this product, uh, not only is it a disincentive and unfair to the people that are trying to work in that sector, but frankly, it damages the richness of our society. So, I consider it to be a very important part of, uh, of our democratic framework. The point I've tried to make in the book, which is why I wrote the book, which is sort of a popular book, really. It's a 200 page book. It's not a learned text, it's not a legal textbook. It's to try and popularize the concept of copyright and explain to people why it needs to be taken seriously.
0: So, uh, with this in mind, uh, is, is there any interest at all in, in Ottawa to pick up the ball here and try to get this thing done?
1: Well, I think it has to be done. I mean, in that, in that op-ed you, you noted, uh, I, I noted that uh, there were mandate letters given to various ministers, right? Uh, yeah. and, uh, um, and copyright is the responsibility of both the industry department, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne and, uh, and Pablo Rodriguez. And uh, this is on their to-do list, uh, and neither of them have got around to doing it. So uh, and there are a couple of years left, so maybe they will get around to doing it. But part of the, uh, uh, you know, the way of making this happen is through uh, discussions with you like this for uh, people becoming aware of it and asking the government, let's get on with this. Let's get it done. Let's not push it down the road another five years, because if it's not done in this mandate, who knows what the next election is going to bring. Any new government, whichever stripe, is going to have a lot of other things on its plate. So this needs to get done now.
0: What's the uh, the U.S. If just for a quick comparison? The, the the U.S. equivalent of this? Are they having a similar debate, or have they settled this?
1: Well, the the U.S. Um, uh, the, the, of course they they. Uh they they they're constantly reviewing their copyright act as well uh their copyright legislation um it tends to be a little bit different in the u.s they have annual uh they can tweak it sort of on an annual basis Mm -hmm. i mean the big issue for canada for the u.s for many countries right now is the issue of artificial intelligence and copyright what's going to happen uh and in the in in the the u.s now they're holding hearings on this in congress uh you know eventually some legislation could be brought in but they don't have the like every five years or x number of years a f- complete revision of the copyright act they tend to do it uh on a on a on an issue by issue basis on an ongoing basis as well
0: well frankly that's why the, that's why the actors are on strike right now it's pretty much for that same reason isn't it that of, uh, that they're concerned the about AI you know the It's it's you know, this is this is my product. This is my this is what I've created. And uh, you know, I we don't want AI taking over what we're doing right now. And it's it's a legitimate beef, and I can understand that. Apply that, as you say, to to other artistic forms, whether it's print or anything else like that. And the same rule should apply.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really tricky to legislate for, AI, legislate for AI because it's moving so fast. But I mean, it does need to be addressed, there's no question. And Canada will get left behind as other countries come to deal with it. Uh, I mean, there has to be some guidelines and some guardrails for the use of AI because what's happening is that the AI algorithms, which can be used for good purposes or not such good purposes, they're sucking up everything. And some of it's just stuff that's out there, it's in the public domain, okay. But some of it is actually work created by creators and- And the end result in some cases is to put those people out of work. So if you're a graphic artist and the AI machine is sucking up your work and everybody else's work and then is producing a product that somebody can basically get for free or very little, you're out of work. And it seems to me there's something fundamentally wrong with that.
0: Well, it's uh, interesting to see just where they're going to go with this. As you mentioned, uh, Minister Rodriguez and uh, uh, and and others, Minister Champagne, I guess, has had his his is, uh, docket pretty much full the last little while trying to get uh, the the test uh, the uh, the Volkswagen and and the Stellantis stuff going. So maybe he can direct his attention to this too. Uh, fascinating story. Uh, really appreciate the op ed piece in the in the Globe and Mail. I think it gave us a a, a pretty strong picture as to what has to happen here. Uh, pleasure having you on the program this morning, Hugh. Thank you so. Much for this.
1: You're very welcome, Bill. And uh, have a good day, and 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 best wishes to your listeners.
0: Thank you so much, Hugh Stevens, uh, University of Calgary, and uh, the, it, it is a big deal. This I think we kind of talked about that with the TV strike yesterday with Bill Brio, and uh, it's you know it's 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 a real issue as far as compensation, but it's also uh, as you say, work can be reprinted time and time again uh, with no compensation. And, uh, you know, if you put your heart and soul into it, whether it's acting, whether it's writing a book or whatever the case might be, and uh, people are just using it, uh, pirating, as some, some people would describe it. Uh, there's got to be some compensation for that and there's got to be some fairness too. So we'll see just whether or not the government's going to run with this one. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some serious discussions going on in Ottawa these days about the future of the RCMP. They've been under a lot of scrutiny uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, sexual assault uh, concerns, uh, uh, lots of concerns about complaints that just go unanswered within the RCMP. Uh, and then there's, of course, the the inquest that went into the, the massive... Uh, shootings in Nova Scotia last year and the behavior in which the RCMP uh, ex- showed in the way that they handled that whole thing. So what is the future? Well, let's uh, ask our next guest about that. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a former CSIS analyst himself, uh, who's been with law enforcement and security for quite some time now. Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on again. Is it time to pull the plug on the RCMP as we know it?
3: Well... Yeah. yeah, What a leading question, Bill. <laughs> uh, this is the 150th anniversary of the force. They've been with us for a long time here in Canada. It hasn't been solely a bad news story. And you, you, you do point to some shortcomings, and they have to be looked at, I think. But, you know, when I worked at CSIS, we also we obviously worked very closely with the RCMP on some files that led to some successful prosecutions on the territory, which I, I worked on for a long time. I, I'm not a big believer in blowing things up, Bill, no pun intended. to some who work in counterterrorism. But, yeah. I, you know, I think some changes can be made without having the current government run roughshod over over this service. And I, I don't like some of the language coming out of the current government. They want to do things, seem to go back for an earlier form of the RCMP. And I'm wondering if that's actually the, the best way forward at this point.
0: Well, even the uh, newly minted RCMP commissioner seems to be on the same page. Um, you know, he's suggesting that you know the RCMP has faced a number of challenges and demands that have affected its sustainability and its ability to deliver. Uh, and uh, no, he's he's not new to the job. Well, new to the job as commissioner, but not new to the RCMP. Uh, somebody, there, there's been discussion about a reboot, if not a you know pulling the plug on it. Uh, and the the, the fact comes up more often than not, Phil is you can't be all things to all people as, as a police service. Uh, if you want to do local policing and, and provincial policing, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, the analogy I'm sure you read over the last couple of days is, is maybe this morphs into kind of the Canadian version of the FBI uh where they're looking after things like terrorism and 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 you know cyber crime and things of this nature and uh, and leave the local policing to to the provinces to decide how they're going to do that instead of basically contracting themselves out.
3: You raise a good point about you know being too many things bill. And I think that's probably one of the issues that has plagued the RCMP. So for your listeners that maybe aren't as aware of this, the RCMP functions at at least three different levels. They're the federal police force, Um, they're the provincial police force in all provinces except for Ontario and Quebec, and they do what's called contract policing at the municipal level. And you may be aware, out in Surrey, BC, there's this big controversy. The mayor has served to ditch the RCMP, so cancel the contract and create or perhaps recreate Surrey City Police, but there's been some backlash to that as well. I think it's difficult for any agency to try and function at multiple levels, although they've done it more or less, you know, with some success over the years. Comparing them to the FBI, though, um, I mean, the Americans have a whole different way of policing, as I'm sure you're aware. They've also got a lot more money that goes into it. And for the government to say that they want, you know, the, the RCMP to focus on things like cybercrime and terrorism, well... <laughs> thesis my former employer, was created out of the old RCMP Security Service about 40 years ago, back in the 84, when it was decided that the RCMP should not do too many things for, you know, like things like counterterrorism and counterintelligence. So my first question for the government would be, so you had a commission back in 81, the McDonald Commission, that made these recommendations to create a, a civilian security intelligence service, i.e. CESIS. Now you want to go back to the RCMP model? Well, what are you going to do with CSIS then? So I... I just don't, I don't like oversimplified solutions to complex problems, Bill, and my concern is that, uh, again, yeah, the current RCP commissioner seems to be on board, but have we re- had, how much thought's really gone into this? And, and perhaps a lot has. I don't work for the government anymore. I just kind of make, want to make sure that so all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted before any decisions are made.
0: Well, when I saw that analogy, and I know the prime ministers use that language, uh, and uh, frankly, so did the SMP commissioner at one point uh, during one of the clips I saw. Uh, My first question is, do you even know how the FBI operates? I mean, or is that just something you picked out because, well, a lot of people won't be able to relate to that? Uh, It's a very complex situation. And and your point's well taken. The discussions you and I have had over the years, uh, it's fairly obvious that if they said, okay, this is the way it's going to be right now, uh, you know, we're just going to concentrate on those areas that we just talked about, national security, terrorism, et cetera. Uh, then you've got a duplication of services with what CSIS is doing. The only difference being CSIS is an information gathering system. They can't lay charges. The RCMP can. Uh, but do you really need two people doing the same investigative uh, work and then you know, let one of them lay charges? it that seems redundant to me.
3: In, in many ways. And, yeah, so, again, for your listeners, the big difference between CSIS and the RCMP is that CESIS, as you said, as an intelligence service, it does not collect to what's called an evidentiary standard, which means its information cannot be used in court, which that the the RCMP, RCMPs can. And when we did work together and do work together, um, it's a very careful relationship because CESIS can be kind of like a bit of an early warning system. You know, like, like Phil Gursky is a bad guy. You might want to take a look at him. But the RCMP investigation has to be based on its own evidentiary chain. Uh, now, you know, on, on, on this sort of CESIS tip-off kind of thing. The FBI, to my understanding, does collect to an evidentiary standard because they are law enforcement, meaning yeah. that if the FBI is doing counterterrorism or counterterrorism, right from the get-go, the information can be used in court. But, yeah, again, you're, um, I would question if, you're, if the RCMP is going to basically become the organization to do these things, maybe we don't need a thesis anymore. And the Americans don't have a thesis. Um, many of our allies do, the Germans, et etc., but you'd have to sort of revisit the mandate of CISA and how it fits into that national security puzzle.
0: Well, sure, and and you know, they're going to say, okay, and again with our limited knowledge of how things work in the states, you've got the FBI which is supposed to basically look after what goes on within the shores of the United States and then you've got CIA which is the international arm, uh, and we all know the stories about the CIA. Uh maybe what we need here is a discussion about definition as to who can do what and who should do what here. Uh you know, and I, I know the province has talked about this. The premiers, as you know, met in uh, Winnipeg last week, and, and this was on the agenda uh, because there's, there's a, an implication here, too. If they decide, okay, no more provincial police uh, jurisdictions here, you guys, uh, Alberta, everybody else, go get your own police uh, services. Mm-hmm. That's going to cost them an awful lot of money uh, to to do that sort of thing and to undertake that sort of thing. And then what do you do uh, with the with the local police in which they're doing in some communities, too? It, it seems somewhat problematic and uh, – <laughs> Stop me if you've heard this before. I'm not so sure the government's thought this through.
1: It's hugely
3: problematic and hugely expensive. So again, going back to Surrey, Bill, I read an article recently whereby if Surrey goes back to creating their own municipal police force, i.e. Uh, canceling the RCMP contract policing, there's some kind of like a $150 million, or, I forget what the figures, but some outlandish amount of money that will be required to do that. And are you saying that the, maybe the provinces should, maybe they shouldn't? Because like we here in Ontario have had the OPP. Since you know, over 100 years, 1909 was the, when the OPP was created. And maybe that is the model going forward. But, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and you can't create a police force in a day. So in that intervening period where you, know, you can have a transition period where the RCMP slowly backs away from contract policing to allow the provinces to create their own. What about small villages and municipalities? Some police, you know, some cities do have police. Yours in Hamilton does here at Ottawa. I grew up in London. We have our own police. What about small hamlets? What what are they going to do for policing when it goes forward? Is it going to be the provincial force? So, again, you know what? Looking at things, reviewing things for change, for improvement, is never a bad idea, Bill. I just hope it's done carefully. And my experience in intelligence and law enforcement is that decisions are made rather haphazardly, rather quickly, And as a consequence, they're not made very well. And and more problems are created than are solved. So I guess the bottom line is we'll watch this space. But but one last thing, Bill. You know, to hear the minister talk about the RCMP doing more on the intelligence side, this is the same government. And you and I have had many conversations on this, that ignored intelligence on China's interference for decades. Now they wanted to have a greater intelligence function? Come on. You, you, You can't blow and suck at the same time, right? You either like intelligence or you don't. So if you want a greater intelligence function with the RCMP, you might want to listen to the intelligence that's been produced, you know, for decades that's landed on your desk in the first place.
0: Well, I don't think that hit across some people's minds too, that this whole discussion is is a bit of a deflection uh, yeah. because an awful lot of the quote unquote information uh, that they would want, it, it was already before them and they just didn't act on it. And that's, exactly. that's something that needs to be discussed too. And, and there are ways around it. Uh, you know, we have the OPP here in Ontario Uh, not everybody has a local police service Uh, up at Blue Mountain and Collingwood where we spend a lot of time. The DOPP do the policing for them under contract. Uh, But I don't know how effective it is, but that's what works. And a lot of small towns do it that way too, uh, with subcontracting. And I think they do that with the QPP in in Quebec as well. That could be an arrangement. But then, of course, you know, whatever these guys are going to talk about, uh, at the end of these discussions, you got to put a dollar figure to it and say, is it, is it, worth that that kind of money. And we're nowhere near having that part of the discussion yet.
3: No, I don't think so. And again, go, going back to the fact that the hundred and fifty of and all the warts and problems that Ian, you know noted in your introductory comments, at the same time, we have to celebrate that this is a world-recognized police force. They have done some great work. I mean, is this the time you want to destroy it after a century and a half of service? Or do, do it. I, I don't know. Um, there's never a perfect solution when it comes to policing when it comes to law enforcement because it's it's a it's a topic many people don't want to talk about. It's not a good topic when we're talking about criminality and that kind of behavior. But I, I just think that adopting another nation's model is is rarely a good idea because your country has its own circumstances, its own conditions, its own history, its own culture, and just saying, "Well, we'll just do what the Americans do." I don't think that's the way forward. I, I th- I'm hoping, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant on this fact. So I'm hoping we're asking some really smart questions, in deeply in terms of what should be the way forward, rather than just making a you know back of the envelope calculation and, and making a mm-hmm. decision. I'm not confident with this government, but I'm um, a half. I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy, so uh, I'll be optimistic for for the time being, I suppose.
0: <laughs> Phil, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today. Take care. You, you too, Bill. Take care. Phil Gursky, uh, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in the Force, as he mentioned, a former CSIS analyst. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Police Association here in Hamilton and uh, the Ontario Solicitor General uh, have added their voices of discontent, shall we say, to B'nai B'rith Canada and the Hamilton Jewish Federation. Uh, They're criticizing Hamilton Center MPP Sarah Jamma for backing an organization they say supports anti-Semitism. John Best from the Bay Observer has been following the story, the publisher of the Bay Observer, and he uh, joins us uh, to talk about, uh, I guess, the latest uh, chapter in this saga. John, this has been going on for some time now, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, it started uh, with the uh, by-election to replace uh, uh, Mayor Horvath, and uh, Jamma was the NDP candidate. And during that campaign, uh, uh, people were looking at her at her social media feeds, and there were just dozens and dozens of very extreme uh, tweets, uh, very angry uh, tweets and uh, on a variety of subjects. But uh, among them was uh, a posting of of her attending a rally in Toronto of a group that was uh, very anti-Israel. And uh, in the view of uh, many groups, uh, anti-Semitic. So she, she was supporting them, um, talking about abolishing police, which is another theme of hers. And at that time, uh, it was only a few days before the election when the story broke, she uh, apologized uh, and, and sort of disavowed what she had been saying. And she took down dozens, if not more, hundreds of tweets but here we go again it's six months later not even that and uh, once again she's attending a rally of a group that um, that is uh, very much uh, opposed to israel and also backs a group that is considered to be anti-semitic so uh, it certainly calls into question the sincerity of her apology that uh, was made just before she got elected
0: Has she crossed the line here legally, John? I mean, you know, for the fact that the Solicitor General's involved in this, uh, you know, that sends up a flag that, uh, that, you know, is this an investigation or is this just the minister uh, expressing his disgust?
2: I I think the latter. Um, I mean, uh, we we still have free speech in this country, and that allows a certain amount of um, outrageous uh, behavior. But I'm I'm starting to look at this a little differently, Bill. I think that in a way, uh, Sarah Jama is kind of the tip of the iceberg of what has happened in the lower city of Hamilton. Uh, at all three levels now uh, provincial, federal, and municipal, we're now represented by people who have, at one point or another, said that they don't like police. Uh, some have called for uh, defunding of the police. And some of these people uh, either uh, seem to be supporting groups that hate Jews. So I I think somewhere when we were having a sleep here in the lower city of Hamilton, where I lived for 30 years, uh, more than 30 years, uh, the whole political apparatus has been taken over by uh, a group of people who um, do not, in my view, having lived in that area for as long as I did, they don't represent the public. They, they get in because, well, number one, they get in because they're supported by the NDP who will put a sign on a lawn and and give you boots on the ground, no matter what your opinions are, apparently. And so there's just been a quiet takeover of, of the lower city by people that hold extreme views, that are out of sync with the people that vote. They rely on, I guess, the apathy that we see in so many elections. And, uh, you know, I think we have a problem here, Bill, uh, at at all three levels. Uh, The the night that Jama was elected, uh, the morning after, she posted a picture of herself with Cameron Kretsch, Narinder Nan, and Matthew Green, all posing with their thumbs up. And uh, that was only a few days after it all broke about her uh, anti-Israeli and anti-police comments. So the only conclusion I think you can fairly draw is that Kretsch, Nan, and Green are okay with JAMA's views.
0: Well, you would think so. Uh, All all the the people you just talked about, the two two city councillors and the MPP and the the federal MP, uh, have all at at one point been associated with some, shall we say, outrageous comments. Some people would, I think, describe them about policing. And uh, I mean, you know, this, of course... Has been going on for quite some time right now. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the demands include abolishing uh, the racist and colonialistic RCMP. And we'll talk about that later on. Abolish the federal law giving people the police the right to use deadly force to illegally kill people. That Those are their words, not ours. Uh, support for the Palestinian struggle against Israelis and support abolishing the police of all forms. Uh, what kind of a community and society are we supposed to live in if there's absolutely no rules and nobody to enforce? It's just, that's anarchy, which is really what, let's call it what it is here.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, we've, we somehow have managed to get ourselves represented in the lower city of Hamilton by some people with some very extreme, non-mainstream views. And uh, I think it's time, frankly, the public woke up to this. I mean, it's going to be a couple of years before we can test any of this. But I, but I think politically, instead of focusing on JAMA or uh, I think we have to look holistically at at the whole lower city representation. These people are in many ways interconnected. Um, uh, Narendra Nan was campaign manager for Matthew Green when he when he was elected to Parliament. Um, they they're talking to each other. They work together. Uh, so you know I, I think I think really the public needs to wake up and and see what we we've, we've somehow managed to sleepwalk our way into uh, allowing an extreme element to take over all three levels of government in Lower Hamilton and but,
0: you know but I don't, John, I your don't want to be an
2: alarmist but that's what No it looks but I mean
0: like. your point is they all got
2: elected. Yeah, they all got elected and uh, partly be, and, and that's where the NDP comes in because we all know that uh, especially in Hamilton where the NDP has some strength that uh, they they can give you boots on the ground at a time when at other political parties, like nobody volunteers anymore. It's hard to get people. Uh, They have that advantage. They can get signs on lawns. They've got instant sign locations. And and so the NDP is part of the problem here. And uh, because they will back people with extreme views, uh, I guess, believing that it's better to elect anybody that will run under the NDP banner than to hold people accountable for uh, what we would call extreme behavior, extreme opinions. So it, it's kind of a four-way. You take the the three levels of government plus the NDP and uh, the Hamilton NDP, and and this is what you've got. Uh, the other issue is that uh, obviously, when when I saw this this feed this week, I I contacted JAMA's office. I contacted Merritt Styles to see. If, if they both uh, agreed with the views of this extremist group in Toronto, of course, no response, not even an acknowledgement. So I think we... Yeah, but John, know, on
0: that point, Marit Stiles didn't respond when you asked her about that uh, just before the election either, did she?
2: No, there, there, at she for another media outlet, she issued kind of a lukewarm, you know, this does not represent our views or something like that, but there was no condemnation. And uh, as far as I can see... Uh, You know, the interesting thing here is that the Liberal Party in Ontario seems to be uh, poised to make some kind of a comeback. I'm not saying I don't think, you know, it'd be a stretch to say that they're ready to to defeat uh, Doug Ford. But it it appears with new leadership and their fundraising has been successful, they're, they're going to probably do better in the next provincial election. And I think where they're going to get any new seats is largely going to be at the NDP's expense because that party is looking extremely weak right now. It, it, it appears to stand for nothing other than getting elected. So you know, there's we've got some interesting times coming ahead, and well, the federal I- NDP as well. Uh, you know, I think this this uh, support deal that that. uh was done by mr singh with trudeau that uh, the the smaller party tends to get hurt with those kind of deals
0: uh whenever that next federal election is going to be as you say the the provincial election is still some time away uh but it, it is a, a, an opportunity and i think a, a requirement uh when somebody who is elected and representing that particular party uh for the leader of that party to have an opinion one way or another on that i mean and they, they just seem so reticent uh to to basically call each other out on situations. I, and I find that awfully frustrating, uh, you know, because it's, well, the word that they all love to use that they rarely practice is accountability.
2: Accountability. And uh, also it would appear that uh, they're, they're not sort of the loving uh, Kumbaya group. There, there, there's some, there's some hard edge to this NDP and they, they just can't seem to get this Jewish issue out of their uh, dialogue. Uh, they're, there appears to be some kind of an issue, uh, an obsession with uh, Palestine and Israel, and um, it's uh, it's hard to understand. I think we always thought of the NDP as being a you know a, a party that, that was a more compassionate party, but there's there's a kind of a nasty edge starting to uh, be persistent uh, when we're talking about both the Ontario and to a lesser extent the federal NDP.
0: Well, it's a very troubling circumstance, and, uh, and uh, we'll just see where this is going to go. But uh, <laughs> silence emboldens uh, people that, that are acting and, and talking like this, and, and that's something we need to be aware of, too. Uh, John, John. Well, silence uh,
2: on city council. Surely well, somebody exa- yeah, on the city exactly. council should speak out in, uh, on on this issue, and we haven't heard a thing.
0: As as should the party leaders and 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 others and uh, uh, some people in the community are anyway. Uh, the Bay Observer, of course, is following the story. John we will stay in touch with you on that. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've seen the pictures on in the TV news. It's just very disturbing pictures of of, of refugees and others uh, who are basically out on the street right now, and there's no place for them to go. Uh, there's a there's a concern here, of course, about accommodation, about the uh, supply for accommodation, uh, and in statistics here are painting a pretty bleak picture about what's going on, uh, including this next study. Uh, nearly all minimum wage workers putting in a standard forty hour work week in Canada face rental housing prices that exceed thirty percent of their monthly pre tax income. Now that was a barometer that was set uh, by uh, a Stats Canada, I guess it was some years ago, and that's been the the, the the formula that we've used for quite some time, uh, that number gets blown out of the water because of what's happening these days. And it's, it's a, a a very ugly picture about what's going to happen and what the forecasts are for the people that are doing minimum wage and looking for accommodation these days. I want to bring David McDonald in, a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives who uh, put this paper out on it. David, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Sure thing. Well, thanks for having me with there was a time when okay you know it should be 30 percent of, of your your pay uh, if it gets a little above that that's fine uh you know hopefully we can work this out uh the most disturbing part and the most disturbing statistic here is 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 the barometer where it is right now housing affordability is it's way above what people are making with minimum wage so I mean the math is all skewed here in other words even if you work 40 hours a week you're not going to make enough money to pay your rent
4: Yeah. I mean, you think of like a minimum wage workers in London or Hamilton making $15.50 an hour. This was the minimum wage in October. Uh, If you want to spend 30% or less of your income on a one-bedroom apartment in Hamilton, you got to make $23 an hour or $22 an hour in London. If you want to rent a two-bedroom apartment, you're going to have to make $29 an hour in Hamilton. Or twenty seven dollars an hour in London. So this is way above the fifteen fifty minimum wage. You think of like a single parent trying to rent a two bedroom apartment for them and their kids. Uh, You know this is really just sort of priced right out of their price range. We looked at the city averages, but then we also looked down at the neighborhood level to say, okay, in these cities, you know, and this this I think really did exist. You know, ten or fifteen years ago, in these cities. Uh, were there pockets of affordability? Maybe it wasn't the nicest part of town, but could you still afford a one-bedroom in a particular neighborhood in Hamilton? Uh, and you can't. Uh, so there are no neighborhoods in Hamilton and no neighborhoods in London where somebody working minimum wage can afford a one-bedroom apartment. In fact, you know, we looked at thirty-seven cities in Canada, uh, and in twenty-seven of those thirty-seven cities, Hamilton and London included. There were zero neighborhoods where you could rent a one-bedroom apartment. So this isn't citywide. This is like even pockets of affordability. Uh, It's just becoming rarer and rarer to find a little section of town, even if it's not a very nice part of town, where you can even rent a one-bedroom apartment
0: at minimum wage. So when when you're in a circumstance like this, I mean, and I know some people have said, well, go get another job. I mean, you were already talking about working a 40-hour week. Uh, there's only so many hours in the day. It's it's not as if these people can you know double their income any way, shape, or form in any time soon, with them collapsing after about two days of, of working two or three jobs in situations like this. But uh, how did we get into this position? I mean, I, you know, we've always had problems like this, and uh, even way, way back when I was on council, uh, uh, almost twenty years ago now, uh, we had concerns about that thirty uh, percent threshold and, and a lot of people that weren't meeting it. Then it's just ballooned out of control now.
4: Yeah. And so there has been a big change. We did something similar uh, to this in 20, with data from 2018, four years ago, kind of a similar approach. Um, and so since 2018, we've actually seen big movement on the minimum wage file, right? Minimum wage is now up to over $15 an hour in big provinces, You know, Ontario, BC, Alberta, all uh, minimum wages up a fair amount since where they were in 2018. Uh, but despite that, rents have gone up faster. And so- if you look at the number of hours that you you have to work at a minimum wage job to afford a two bedroom apartment uh, in London or Hamilton, uh, in both cases it's up twelve hours. So people working minimum wage, despite these increases to over fifteen dollars an hour, still have to work fifteen more ou- or twelve more hours now compared to where they stood four years ago, just to afford the same sort of average two bedroom unit. And I think this speaks to the fact that you know we think increases in minimum wages are going to improve the living conditions of the working poor, folks that are working full time, full year. Um, But in this case, it's actually ended up improving the working the living conditions of landlords uh, because rents have gone up so much faster than uh, minimum wages have.
0: Well, and we've seen you know this. (laughs) The worst case scenario, I guess, is that, you know, a number of people in Toronto right now that are simply refusing to pay their rent because they can't. I mean, that's that's all there is to it. I mean, they're past the breaking point here, uh, and uh, I guess the obvious question is here. I mean, what are solutions? I mean, minimum wage is not cutting it. I mean, you know, and like you say, if this government in Ontario, for instance, decided to increase that minimum wage, I don't I, I hold your breath waiting for that to happen. Uh, but that's not even going to cover things. Do we expand that discussion then into things like a living wage, which uh, is something that that has been talked about and actually tried in this province a couple of years ago? Yeah, I mean, you've
4: got two parts to this. One is how high is, is the minimum wage and how fast is it going up, and the other is how high are rents and how fast are they going up. Um, when you take a look at places like Toronto, uh, the the wage you would the hourly wage you'd need to afford uh, a one bedroom the average one bedroom apartment in Toronto. Is over $33 an hour. It's $33 an hour in Vancouver. Two-bedroom is over $40 an hour in Vancouver or Toronto. Uh, you know, people are certainly discussing increases in the minimum wage, but no one's saying the minimum wage should be $33 an hour. Uh, and so I think it it bears looking at the other side of the equation, which is why are rents going up so quickly? Uh, one of the reasons why they're going up is because interest rates are going up. So as interest rates go up, Rents go up because the landlords have to pay more interest on the loans that they have on their units, so they push that down to tenants and higher rent increases. Um, more long term, you know, we often talk about, oh, this is a problem of supply. Uh, that's a that's really, in my mind, a very dangerous oversimplification of how you get more affordable rental. Um, first of all, we need to look at rent controls. Uh, Are the rent controls adequate? Do they cover all units or do they cover some units? How big are the loopholes? And certainly in Ontario, there's plenty of loopholes for landlords to get around rent controls and increase rents far faster than the rate of inflation. Uh, We do need to talk about wage suppression in addition to minimum wages. So, We've got a pretty strong labor market right now, and so um, you would expect wages to be going up in some of these areas where you see a lot of low-wage workers, you know, food, hospitality, retail. Uh, But instead, we're seeing a big flood of temporary foreign workers. So you bring in these de facto rightsless workers uh, who come in and, uh, you know, are, are going to work at minimum wage, and that keeps wages down for workers in those sectors. When we talk about supply, yeah, we certainly need more supply, but the but the the you know the type of supply matters. You know, if you want to pave farm fields outside of London and put mansions on them, well, that's not going to change rental affordability at all. Doesn't does increase supply, but doesn't change rental affordability. If we really want to have supply that changes rental affordability, we need purpose built rental. We need apartment buildings, uh, and they should be non market and affordable. So it's not whatever the market will bear in terms of rents. Uh, but it's a reasonable amount. So folks that are working, say, full-time, full-year at minimum wage could plausibly afford them. Uh, They need to be centrally located, not way out. So people have to commute uh, on roads into town. And one of the other features of high interest rates is that it suppresses private sector new residential construction. So the private sector doesn't want to build new residential construction when interest rates are really high. And what that means is uh, we likely have to look to the federal government and CMHC in particular to build those units themselves. Uh, and they were doing this in the 70s and 80s. I mean, half mm-hmm. of all units were affordable housing in the 70s and 80s. Uh, we haven't really done it since the 80s. And so you've got this huge 30-year gap of building affordable rental housing. Uh, now it's the time to start start building that again.
0: Well, there's another concept that I, when I read these numbers here that I'm, I'm wondering about. It doesn't really factor into the discussion very often, and that's uh, geared to income, uh, which I know was something that was done back in the seventies and eighties. Uh, but it just I, I don't know if it's fallen out of favor or people have just forgotten about it. Uh, but you know, they they basically look at your financial situation and say, okay, you're going to pay this. Uh, and then your next door neighbor, may be in a better situation, and maybe paying a little bit more in rent. But I mean, you know, it's, it's confidential information. But it it got people housed anyway. Yeah, there are
4: huge backlogs in big cities uh, in terms of accessing those types of units where you've got a rent gear to income scheme for folks working a minimum wage. Maybe they can't work because they have disabilities, something like that. Those programs certainly exist. Um, but the construction of new units that might really cut down on the huge uh, wait lists and backlogs in big cities, they just haven't been being built. And so as a result, you just end up with long wait lists. For access to to programs like that that might substantially reduce rental costs for people in low income situations.
0: So would that be part of the solution? I mean, if you are going to look for Canada housing to mortgage and housing to get into this, uh, did they do they look for projects like that, that are are gonna be gearing in and at least maybe clear up some of that backlog? Well
4: well, they don't presently do that, but yes, they should be doing more of yeah, it. I mean, I know. that's part of the that's part of the portfolio of affordable housing. There's gonna be some that's gonna be rent-geared to income, some of which is just gonna be affordable. Uh, you know, more affordable rents that uh, are closer uh, to just the cost of building the building, not whatever the market will bear. Uh, but those are the sorts of things that we need to building. We need to be building much more of the national housing strategy, which started in earnest in 2017. Um, ha- has been premised. Big parts of it have been premised around um, incentivizing private developers to build more affordable housing, but it's more on the incentive side, and that becomes. You know, it becomes much more difficult with really high interest rates because the high interest rates just really crush any interest uh, developers might have to to build more more rental
0: housing. Is is there in any this discussions going on about this? And I'd like to think there's a lot of discussion going on about this when we see the, the, the damage that's being caused here uh, about the impact this is having on the economy. Even somebody who's listening to this conversation right now that says, well, that has nothing to do with me. I've got a nice place. I'm living, you know. Uh, even if they're renting, uh, but it does because it drags the whole economy down. I mean, everybody who's in a situation like that essentially has no disposable income, so they're not buying anything of any consequence. They're not contributing to the economy. Um, and I'll go back to my point about a living wage. One of the pilot projects for that was here in Hamilton uh, some years ago, and uh, sadly, the Ford government pulled the plug on it, but it was there long enough for us to actually talk to some of the people that were applying, and then a few months later, how, how's it going? Uh, and there were some wonderful stories of what people that were able to, first of all, pay their rent, uh, maybe even move out of a, a, a less than you know a glamorous uh, apartment situation, move on. Some went back to school. So there were success stories where people were competing. Uh, but we don't seem to get that. That's not part of the story anymore. And so we kind of look at it like, oh, those poor souls over there. Anyway, let me get on with my life. And that's not really going to help the situation.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, we one of the arguments for minimum wage is that folks would have more money in their pockets, and folks who are working at minimum wage do not save a dime because they have to spend everything on basic needs. Uh, and so the idea is that higher minimum wages would yield uh, better economic growth. Well, it doesn't yield better economic growth in general because uh, you know if folks are spending all that increase in their minimum wage on higher rents, uh, and it's really the the landlords that benefit through higher income. The other piece, of course, to recognize is that if you want workers in downtowns of cities doing food, hospitality, retail work, uh, they often can't live there. And so they're going to have to live further out from the centers. They're going to be commuting in. Uh, everybody on a freeway, stuck in a freeway, stuck in traffic, You know where do all these people come from? Well, in large part, they can't live close to their jobs. You know, they're going to have to commute in because rents downtown are too expensive. Uh, and so uh, in addition to that, if you're a business, hiring those folks downtown uh, there's often going to be additional wage pressures that you're going to have to pay so that those folks can afford rent. Uh, and so you end up with this transfer between businesses trying to employ people uh, and landlords who are seeing, uh, you know, big rent increases who, who who may well get the benefits of those increases in wages.
0: Well, one of the other elements here in Ontario that I think has been problematic when I talk to some of the the advocacy groups about this anyway, David, uh, is that uh, the provincial government has is restructured, shall we say, uh, the appeals process for people that feel as if they're being wronged by landlords. And and, uh, by, and I, again, I'll just, to, to try of cut off a number of emails I'm going to get when I make a statement like that, I'm not saying all landlords are bad, because they're not. Uh, there are some unscrupulous uh, landlords, certainly there are, but there used to be a pretty solid appeal process. So yeah, there's a huge backlog, but you'd be able to do that. Uh, that's been changed, shall we say, uh, which puts a lot of people in a rather precarious position because they, they don't really have recourse or any support mechanisms to try to deal with some of these issues.
4: Yeah. So there's plenty of ways in Ontario and in other provinces where you can get increases, um, rental increases above the rate of inflation. It depends on when the building was built, for instance. It depends on whether your landlord applied for um, above guideline increase or AGI. Uh, those are both means by which uh, you can legally increase the rent by potentially far more than inflation. Uh, and those are legal ways. I mean this is this isn't even like the illegal ways, the rent eviction ways that are yeah. uh, that are really gray or potentially straight up illegal. Uh and plenty of that's happening as well. Um, you know, there are plenty of legal loopholes in order to circumvent um rent increases and and uh you know get around rent controls. And you know this is part of the this is part of a potential solution is ensuring that rent controls aren't riddled with loopholes um and the process to uh, to obtain uh, rent increases higher than the rate of inflation are really in, in unusual circumstances and aren't just kind of uh, run-of-the-mill things that big corporations will just apply to every single year and get um, so that they can ensure that rents keep going up faster than the rate of inflation.
0: Well, again, as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, an awful lot of this is tied to to the interest rate increases uh, as well, because the landlords uh, that I hear from are strapped in saying, look, what what choice do I have? You know, I'm paying more now than I did six months ago. Uh, I just got to pass that on. I can't absorb that cost. And I I see their argument. uh, But on the other hand, then the tenants are are the ones that are bearing the brunt of this too. Uh, And that goes back to a conversation I was having earlier in the show about the collateral damage that increases are causing. Uh, like this as a, as a matter of fact including uh, contributing to inflation which is exacerbating everybody's problems so uh we seem to be chasing our tails here and I just wonder somebody's kind to kind of just say okay hold it let's let's talk about how we're going to solve this instead of just wringing our hands uh it's it's an eye-opening report and I think it really puts into perspective some of the major challenges we're facing always a pleasure David to have you on the program thanks so much for this today your sure thing thanks for having me Take care. David McDonald, who is a senior economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. And look, I, 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 I feel the pain here by everybody, but man, we've got to have this discussion